Hello, and welcome back to Our Foundations. My name is Joshua, and today we are going to be doing another case study episode. The previous case study we did was on ancient Israel and their governance system, and so now we're going to bump ahead quite a few years to early American history, and we are going to be covering the Founding Fathers, the Constitution, and the Federalist coup that occurred around that time. The approach I'm taking for this episode is to look at this story and these ideas through the lens of some important documents that appeared in that time. So we're going to look at William Bradford's journal, and that would be the early Plymouth Colony. We'll look at the Declaration of Independence, then the Articles of Confederation, then the Constitution, the Federalist Papers, and the Bill of Rights, and then maybe a touch on the Emancipation Proclamation. And so you've probably heard of these different documents, but they're very important and oftentimes misunderstood as far as the backstory is concerned. So to start things off, I want to start off with a quote from one of our founding fathers about the things we're going to be talking about today. And this was from Thomas Jefferson. He said, and I quote, I know no safe depository of the ultimate powers of the society but the people themselves. And if we think them not enlightened enough to exercise their control with a wholesome discretion, the remedy is not to take it from them, but to inform their discretion by education. This is the true corrective of abuse of constitutional power. So there you have it. That was Thomas Jefferson, one of the most famous founding fathers, and basically giving us his opinion that the true check on power, and that would be power of the government, power of the Constitution, and power of whatever America would become from his point of view, would be education of the citizens themselves, of us, us the people. And that would be true of any government and any group of citizens. And so that's actually what we're trying to do today, is to gain a little more understanding, a little more education on the beliefs that America was founded on, and try to educate ourselves so that we do not fall into some of these same traps and we can see through some of the rhetoric that is aimed at us in today's society. To begin with, the colonies in general were mostly Christian denominations that were getting away from the state church in England and in Europe And they wanted the freedom to practice whatever denomination of Christianity they practiced. They wanted to practice it in freedom. They wanted to have the freedom to practice the way they wanted and worship the way they wanted and to have the beliefs that they believed in, the interpretations they believed in. And so they broke away and came to America. Now, not everybody was a Christian sect, but the majority of the people that came over and the majority of the settlements, this is how they began. And that's where we get the idea of religious freedom. However, you do see that religious freedom doesn't mean freedom to celebrate any religion. It is freedom to practice Christianity in whatever way they chose. Typically, it was Protestant Christianity, and that was it. They actually 
kicked a lot of people out of town, whipped them, and there are many bad things that happened to people that did not follow the Christianity that many of the settlers did follow. So there were some issues there. But in general, they at least wanted freedom to express their religious beliefs when it came to Christianity. So that's something. Now, the first colony I want to mention, I guess the only one specifically, will be Plymouth. It was one of the earliest colonies, and we have a very good record from William Bradford in William Bradford's journal. You can get a copy of this and read it. Uh, It's not all that long. And he goes into... Uh, the whole trip coming over and how they set up the colony and how things went and what they did and the effects of that and all this stuff. But the point that I want to take out of his journal is the way that they tried to start their colony and their society. So when they first started, they formed basically a socialist society. They did more communal living where everyone worked and everyone worked the same amount and everybody shared the proceeds evenly. So everybody pretty much washed. The women generally washed clothes and sewed clothes and prepared food. The men would work on the farms and harvest food and grow food and go hunting. And then they'd throw all the food together and all the proceeds of whatever work they were doing together and shared amongst the people, and everybody had their equal share. And so, in theory, this seems like a great idea. This has been an idea that's been thrown around for thousands of years, and it is still thrown around today. However, we do see an example in this case, at least, where it didn't work out so well. So, what ended up happening was that most of the women and most of the kids said that they were feeling ill most of the time and were not able to work very much. So, they pretty much stayed at home. And a lot of the men were having some of the same problems. And he specifically said that a lot of the young men that were able-bodied and would be able to do a lot of work, they weren't actually producing all that much. And they weren't trying very hard. And so, as you can guess, they didn't really have a very good harvest. And some people starved. And it wasn't going so well. So... Let me read one quote out of his journal, and this kind of covers how he felt about this experiment of the communal socialism that they tried. This is William Bradford. He said, and I quote, The failure of this experiment of communal service, which was tried for several years, and by good and honest men, proves the emptiness of the theory of Plato and other ancients applauded by some of later times that the taking away of private property and the possession of it in community by a commonwealth would make a state happy and flourishing, as if they were wiser than God. So that's what he was saying, is that this was an idea that's been thrown around since Plato and all throughout humanity and in many different societies, the idea that, hey, we all work together, it's for the common good, we pitch in and we all reap the same rewards and it's all fair. You have this system of egalitarianism that works so well. It's the communist idea, it's socialist idea, it's the communal living, it's, it's been tried in many forms, many ways, but he found that it didn't really work very well for them. So, what he did is he actually converted to capitalism, and so he essentially gave private property to all the different settlers in the community and said that... Whatever you produce, you get. 
and that's the way we're going to do things. So what ended up happening is all of a sudden the women and the children weren't feeling very ill and they actually could work now. So this was wonderful. And also some of the men had been getting a little angry because their wives were washing the clothes and mending the clothes of other men. And this just, you know, wasn't right. Well, now the wives were washing and mending the clothes of her household and this felt much better. There's much more morale that was going around the young men actually started producing much more than everybody else, and they were working much harder, getting a lot more done, and they had a great harvest that next year, and it went so well that they never looked back. And so that was how things went, and you you can imagine that this makes perfect sense. If me working for a day doesn't really affect what I get at the end of the day or at the end of the week or at the end of the harvest season, then I'm not very motivated to work very hard. Everybody else is working. Everybody will do their fair share. Everybody will get their own. You know, if I work a lot harder, it's not really going to make a big difference to me or anyone else. So who cares? That's the idea. That's kind of like the typical government employee idea. Like, where's the motivation? It's just not there. But if you do have private property and you are in control of what you produce and what you get out of that, and this would be capitalism, then you are motivated because the harder you work, the better ideas that you have, the more you can market yourself and your products, the more you get out of it. You get more wealth, whether that be in food, whether that be in productivity, whether that be in money, you get more. And you can get more out of it if you put more work into it. And so you have this motivation to do more, to produce more, to innovate more. And that's what they found in the Plymouth colony early on. So the colonies in general had British overseers, but in general, they ran themselves and basically did what they wanted. Every colony had their own courts, their own police, their own militias, their own schools, their own systems, their own churches. They handled everything on their own. Now, they did have to technically follow the rules from overseas, and technically they had to listen to the overseers, but in general, they had their own way. So by the time... 1776 rolls around, we have Common Sense, the pamphlet, has come out, and it is telling people that it doesn't really make sense to be under the thumb of this oppressive government overseas, and we should pretty much break away. And that was the gist of it, and this was getting around to all the people and the locals in the colonies, and they were starting to agree with this sentiment, and there was a big push for independence. Now, not everybody agreed. Some colonies refused to support independence from Britain, but many others wanted independence. And so there ended up being this political battle that did come to an end with the Declaration of Independence. Now, what happened with the Declaration of Independence was that in the final version, you had statements of people's natural rights. And this was a very important concept because they believed that all men are created equal and that all men have certain rights to life and liberty 
and property, things of this nature, and that if a government oppresses the people, that it is the people's job to break away from that government and get out from under it because it is infringing on the people's natural rights that were given by God. And so no one can take that away. That was their argument. They listed grievances against the king in ways that he had oppressed them. And they cited some more moral arguments for why the king and the crown were abusing their power and how they were not acting morally towards the colonies. And so... This document ended up getting signed by the people we think of as some of our founding fathers, names like Benjamin Franklin and Thomas Jefferson, John Hancock, all these types of people. The problem was that everybody had a different opinion on a lot of these things. So there are multiple versions and multiple revisions. Jefferson actually wanted to put a whole clause in there about slavery and the immorality of slavery. But, of course, that didn't sit well with those that had slaves, and so that didn't get in there. And there are many other debates and arguments going on. But we ended up getting a Declaration of Independence. It ended up getting signed by the colonies, and we officially broke away from England. Now, the next set of documents were the Articles of Confederation. So there actually were people that said we should not declare our independence until we have the Articles of Confederation finished. However, others argued that we needed to break away as soon as possible. It was a moral issue, and we had to do it, and they ended up doing it and convincing everyone around them to agree and to sign. But there was still the issue of the Articles of Confederation, because you had all of these independent and sovereign states and colonies that ruled themselves, governed themselves, had their own militias, had their own governments, had their own courts, they had their own everything, and they wanted to have some sort of pact to say that they would stick together to fight against the British, because obviously a fight was coming. And the British were some of the best troops in the world at that time. So this was a pretty big deal. What ended up happening is that they basically agreed to a peace and cooperation treaty between the states. So most of the states actually already had their own constitutions. They had their own governments and governance structures. So all they really needed was an agreement that they would all work together against the British and they would fight together for the freedom of all of the states. And states in this context is more of what we would think of as a sovereign nation, a nation state, not necessarily a state as they are today, as just this slightly independent regional area uh, under the thumb of the federal government. But at that time, there was no federal government. They didn't want a federal government. They were getting out from under a centralized, large government. That was the whole point. So the Articles of Confederation did not have things like the power to tax or creating a large military and a way to fund it or stipulations for regulating trade and tariffs. It didn't have this stuff in it because that wasn't the point. They weren't setting up a brand new government and they were not trying to unify themselves as one large nation 
No, they were all independent sovereign states, and they just wanted an agreement that said they would all work together. So that's what they did. Now, what ended up happening was that after the war for independence, we did win, and America did break away. There were groups of people, though, that felt like the Articles of Confederation were lacking. So there were people that wanted to be able to raise taxes because they said we needed an army, and we didn't have the ability to fund an army, not a national army. And we needed some other things, and we needed a way to fund them, so we needed taxes, so we needed the constitutional authority to collect taxes. That was a big deal. Also, trade was probably one of the biggest deals aside from taxes because the states wanted to be able to group together and make trade deals with other nations and have that be binding to other states. And if they set tariffs, they didn't want the other nations to be able to go to the state below them and just trade with them instead. So what they did was they called for a Continental Congress to meet up and go over the Articles of Confederation so that they can make some amendments and try to come to an agreement on changing a few things and adding a few things. And let me read uh, basically a quote for what was sent out to the different colonies and states at the time. This is what was sent out to the states. It is expedient that on the second Monday in May next, a convention of delegates who shall have been appointed by the several states be held at Philadelphia for the sole and express purpose of revising the Articles of Confederation. And that's just a little quote out of what was sent out, but that gives the gist of what the plan was. The sole and express purpose of revising the Articles of Confederation. That's what was sent out. That's what the delegates ended up... Well, that's what they thought they were going to do. Uh, but what happened was that when they arrived in Philadelphia, they found out that there was this small political group, very powerful group, called the Federalists. And the Federalists, they wanted to set up a brand new centralized federal government. That was their idea. They really wanted this. They thought it was really important. It's not that they were evil. They just had a different view from kind of the original view of the colonies, the more libertarian view of we do things on our own, we're all sovereign. The Federalists had the idea that we need to rally together and have one nation, all be one nation. And so what happened was they had already scrapped the Articles of Confederation. It was kind of a lie to say that was the goal was to go over it because no, they had already canceled that one out. Not only had they canceled out the Articles of Confederation, they had actually written a brand new document that outlined what this new federal government should be. And they had already worked out how this was going to be structured, what it should be, what the limitations should be, what the privileges should be. This was already done. So it was basically a farce to say that they were going to revise the Articles of Confederation. No, it was just a ploy to get all the delegates there so that they could ratify this new document that they had created. And the new document that the Federalists created, as I'm sure you can guess, is the Constitution. So what happened was that there were many that just turned around and left. They got a little upset. So you had Rhode Island, uh, all of their delegates ended up just turning around and leaving. I looked at the 
different states that attended, and there were only four states, Delaware, New Hampshire, Pennsylvania, and South Carolina, that all of their delegates signed the Constitution. They agreed with it. There were one, two, three, four, five different states where 50% or more of their delegates did not sign and did not agree. So there was definitely not a universal agreement on the Constitution. Again, the idea behind the liberation from the British was to get out from under a centralized federal government. That was the whole point. It was a monarchy, and this would now be type of federation of sorts where different states would still have some powers, but it still would be one large federal government, overall government that did run pretty much everything as far as the big matters go, like taxation and military and tariffs and that kind of stuff. So what happened was that a lot of people disagreed with this, and a lot of people didn't want to sign it. However, like I mentioned, the Federalists already had this made up. They had already discussed all this. They had already had arguments for the arguments that they knew would come up against this idea, because obviously there were going to be plenty of complaints since they were trying to set up a brand new government right after they had broken away from another oppressive one. And one of the big complaints, uh, Benjamin Franklin, I think, was the one that brought this up, was that it offered too much power in the executive branch and the judicial branch and the legislative branch. But when you think about that, that's every branch that the Constitution creates. And the clauses such as they can do basically whatever they want for the general welfare of the people or for the common defense of the nation... There were many people that they saw that this would end up basically giving the government unlimited power because they could always cite these cases if they wanted to, and that's really what ended up happening. I'd like to do a little side note here to give a more modern example of how this played out. So in 1942, there was an Ohio farmer named Roscoe Filburn, and what he was doing is he was growing wheat on his farm, and he was feeding his animals with it. Well, what happened was that at this time, the government had had limits on wheat production. This was a time during the New Deal, and there's a lot of stuff going on. Yeah, I'm not even going to get into it. But the point is that there were limits on wheat production. And this man, he was growing wheat presumably more than what the government allowed. However, the man was using it for his own animals. He wasn't selling it to anybody. He wasn't doing anything else with it. He was just growing it for himself and feeding it to his animals, and that was it. However, what ended up happening was that since he was growing more than the government had said that anyone could grow... He was approached by the government and ordered to pay a penalty, and the government basically sued him and fined him, and he took this to court. He went all the way up, I believe, to the Supreme Court, if I remember right, and what happened was that the court ended up saying that this was an issue of interstate commerce. Now, that's a clause in the Constitution that the federal government would have the power to govern and regulate interstate commerce. So any 
commerce, buying and selling of goods and services that go across state borders they can regulate. However, I'm sure you can recognize here that the man was not involved in interstate commerce. He was growing wheat on his own farm, giving it to his own animals. He wasn't even participating in commerce at all. So how in the world did the Supreme Court get away with saying that this was an issue of interstate commerce? Well, what they said was that the man who was growing all this wheat, if he would not have been growing this wheat, he still would have had to have feed his animals somehow. And in order to feed his animals wheat, presumably that's what he wanted to do, he would have had to purchase this wheat from another supplier, from another person. Now, even though this other person may not have been in a different state, there would you could follow the chain of the different buying and selling and commerce that would happen between this man and another wheat farmer and that wheat farmer and someone else and blah, blah, blah. Eventually, it goes across state borders. So because of that, because of the potential of if the farmer had not have been growing too much wheat, he would have had to have gotten it somewhere else and somewhere along that chain, probably well beyond that purchase of wheat, it would have crossed state borders. And therefore, the government does have the power to regulate this man and fine him and they did get their money. So you can see how there are major abuses of power. And this was happening. The example I just gave was, I think, 1942, I said. And so this did end up happening. There are much more ridiculous examples that have happened, especially since then. But the point is that the founding fathers and the colonists and the state representatives, they did see that this was going to be an issue. It was obvious when they read the Constitution that there weren't enough checks on power, that there were these overarching clauses that would give the government too much power, and they could always cite those as an excuse to basically do whatever they wanted. But like I said, the Federalists knew this going in. They knew there was going to be a debate here. They knew there were going to be complaints. So they already had their arguments written up. They already had them ready. They formally wrote them. There are different authors, mainly John Jay, Alexander Hamilton, and James Madison, and they wrote the next set of documents I was going to mention, and that is the Federalist Papers. So what they did is they argued for the Constitution, and this was prior to ratification. So even though the Constitution had been, it had been submitted at the Continental Congress, and it was agreed to go to the ratification process, it would have to be ratified by every state before it would be official and go into effect. So what happened was John Jay, Alexander Hamilton, James Madison, they wrote these Federalist Papers, they laid out all their arguments, they said that, you know, the government would be held in check, the states could always keep them in check if nothing else, and that the states could always secede. There were actually multiple states that put a clause in there that they would be allowed to secede if the federal government ever overstepped their bounds and they didn't agree with this new federal government. And that didn't work out very well for them. Look at the Civil War. But anyway, these things were thought of. And in the Federalist Papers, the Federalist actually said that the goal was not to create this giant, huge, all-encompassing federal government that just ran everything. The goal was just to give a national government, create a national government, and give that government the power to do things like tax and 
deal with treaties and trade deals and tariffs and have a military force to protect everybody, that kind of stuff. Things that most people would agree, you know, that's not too bad. That's fine. But even though the Federalists argued that this was the case, even they would be horrified at what the government has become today. This is nowhere near what they ever imagined. Something like forced schooling in government institutions would have been... They would have said there's no possible way. There'd be a revolution way before that happened. Uh, Think about our tax rates. Well, when the Crown wanted to tax the colonies... It was the tiniest tax on just a few items that basically pushed them over the edge. What about the massive taxes that we have on just about everything nowadays? Well, that probably would not have even been dreamed of, even by the Federalists. But the point is that these Federalist papers were written, they were passed out, they went all around, they circulated, and they defended the need for a powerful central government. They did say that the powers were limited to only what is explicit in the Constitution. So they said that if there was something that was not explicitly stated and written in the Constitution, then this federal government would not be able to do it or participate in it. Everything had to be explicitly written, and that's what the Federalists themselves said. Well, nowadays, that's not what's believed. It is believed that... Not everything could be explicitly written, and so as long as it has to do with general welfare or common defense or interstate commerce, then we can do basically whatever we want. And that's the excuse the government has given, that or protection or, yeah, all kinds of stuff. Point is, that was not the goal to begin with, even by the Federalists. So it did say that the government would not be able to bloat and it would not be able to take control over the states and take sovereignty away from the states. The states would have to give up a small amount of sovereignty in these federal areas and these big issues, these national issues, but that was it. In general, the states could still run themselves, have their own sovereignty, do their own things. So sure enough, the arguments were convincing enough, and the other side didn't really even have a chance to create their own defenses because this was a big surprise to them. They had shown up at the Continental Congress and thought they were just going to be debating the Articles of Confederation and doing some tweaks to it. And so this new constitution just came out of nowhere. And pretty much by the time they digested it, the Federalist Papers had already come out and there were all these expansive arguments and details and is all laid out there. Well, it would have taken a while to go through all this, to create counter-arguments, to publish that and distribute it, everything else, it didn't work. The opposition had zero chance, well, maybe 1% chance. It was very unlikely that they would be able to put up much of a fight against Federalists who were very well organized, very well prepared. They were very articulate. They were masters of rhetoric, and they succeeded. We did get the Constitution. So the next document that came out that was an address to some of the complaints about the Constitution was the Bill of Rights. And that's what some of the opposition was saying was that, hey, there's no Bill of Rights here. There's no guarantees for individual freedom. That's one of the weaknesses of this Constitution. Well, a Bill of Rights was written, and it did cover individual freedoms. It safeguarded individuals from the government and abuse from the government. However, the Bill of Rights was not enforceable. 
it was very low impact at the time when it was released in one newspaper and it was citing just the different events. The Bill of Rights being officially signed was actually listed right after something about fishing licenses that had changed in one of the states. So it wasn't really highly thought of at the time. People thought, well, yeah, whatever, you know, that's nice and all, but you can't enforce it. It has no legal power. What's the point? You know, thanks, but it's not really a big deal. And that's what people believed. Now, going way back to the Declaration of Independence, it was actually kind of similar. There were things in there that people cite nowadays and say, oh, the Declaration of Independence says, well, the Declaration of Independence was not a enforceable contract at all. And that wasn't the point. That's what the Constitution is. And so even though the Declaration of Independence may say some certain things that we agree with and we want to uphold and we want protection for, it was not a governing document. So the Bill of Rights was kind of the same thing when it came out. The goal was that over time, the Bill of Rights would become this more cultural, accepted idea that would infuse into the society. People would just believe it. People would rely on it. People would start citing it, and it would become basically just the same level as the Constitution. And that's actually what ended up happening, and it worked out well. So... One example in the Bill of Rights would be the Second Amendment. I want to bring that up because that's something highly debated right now. That's uh, dealing with gun laws, and nowadays at least. At the time, it was weaponry in general. And what the Second Amendment, what it was intending to get across was that the people have the right and have actually the responsibility to arm themselves against a government so that the government does not become tyrannical and cannot take over. That was the idea. And this wasn't just individuals. This was geared towards states as well. So when the Constitution was signed, there's basically this deal where, yeah, we're going to have this national military force, but you states, you can still have your own militias, and you'll have your army, we'll have our army, and they'll keep each other in check, we'll be fine. That was the idea. The Bill of Rights, it did codify this and made sure that that was written out, that people have the right to arm themselves equally to the armaments for the federal government. Now, think about what that would mean in today's world. That would get very interesting. This is a very different issue than can I own an AR-15 to shoot in my backyard every once in a while? No, this is like tanks and military aircrafts and bombs and all kinds of stuff that Yeah, that'd be interesting. It probably would have to be a state issue. States would have to secede. Yeah, it's basically hopeless nowadays. But that was the intention when the Bill of Rights was written. So it's kind of interesting. But moving on, the final document I want to mention was much later because, and we'll probably do an episode on the Civil War at some point, but the Civil War was inevitable when you think about these issues, because a lot of the states and a lot of the people had this more libertarian attitude that we govern ourselves, we rule ourselves, we have our own sovereignty. But over time, just as predicted by most of the founding fathers and other people, over time, the government did get bloated. They did increase their power, they did increase their size, they did start taking over sovereignty, 
And there were some states that didn't really like this very much and started to break away. Now, you did have the slavery issue that was an issue. However, the biggest issue definitely on the side of the North was that they wanted to make sure that the federal government stayed intact. That was the most important thing, period. Let me read a little quote from Abraham Lincoln, the leader of the North, to see what his views were on the slaves, the slavery issue, and blacks in general. Well, what Abraham Lincoln said was, I will say then that I am not, nor ever have been, in favor of bringing about in any way the social and political equality of the white and black races. Lincoln later went on to basically say that the black race was inferior and that it is better for both races to be separated, that he never had any plans and did not think that it was even morally right to give blacks the opportunity for citizenship or for voting or serving on juries or anything like that. So, yeah, Abraham Lincoln was a racist, and there's not much debating that. He did not have very fond views. So... Was slavery the issue? Well, no, definitely not from his point of view. He had said at one point that he was going to hold the nation together, the union together. It did not matter if that meant freeing all the slaves or freeing none of the slaves or freeing half the slaves. It did not matter to him. His most important issue was keeping the union together. He would not allow the union to break up. This was very important to him. The other aspect is that Pretty much every president that had served during a wartime prior to him had gotten reelected. So you would think that maybe that's a good idea. If we do go to war, I'm pretty much guaranteed to get reelected. He did enjoy his power. And so that's probably another motivator there. And sure enough, he did get reelected. But he did have plenty of opportunity to negotiate with the South. The South tried negotiating with him. Some of the states that seceded, at least the second round of states that seceded, did have the clauses when they ratified the Constitution that they were allowed to secede if they disagreed with the federal government. So it was their constitutional right, as well as the fact that if states want to secede, it's up to them, and they can technically do that. There's no reason why the Union should force them to stay. And Lincoln could have done this. Lincoln could have either had some sort of treaty where he allowed the South to keep their slaves and operate the way they wanted to and keep their state rights and keep their sovereignty. Or he could have allowed them to just break away and you would have the Confederacy in the South and the Union in the North. And he could have allowed that. That would have been fine. Either one of those solutions would have resulted in no war. The Civil War would have never happened. However, that's not the way it worked out. So, that was kind of a result of all these prior debates that were going on in the times of the founding of America. Because the whole point was they wanted to make sure originally that they kept their sovereignty, that the colonies and the states would be able to run themselves, that even if we had a new federal government, that it would at least only stick to these certain areas and basically butt out of the state's business. The states would pay their little bits of taxes or little contributions or whatever. They'd help out. They'd send some representatives. But in general, the states would run themselves and make their own decisions. 
And that, of course, led to the issue of states' rights. And later on, you did have the slavery issue as a part of states' rights. And yeah, the Civil War and lots went on because of that. But again, the Federalists or the Union, they ended up winning and they did take over and we do have the America that we have today. The state continued to get larger and larger, to bloat bigger and bigger, to take more and more control, and to take more and more sovereignty away from the states. It is very rare now for the states to disagree with the federal government. We think now that, oh, wow, it's crazy that X and Y state have said that marijuana should be legal just completely or that prostitution should be a legal thing or whatever the case may be. That seems like a big deal that a state would go against the federal government and say that something should be legal that the federal government says shouldn't be. Well, the whole point originally was that the federal government would not have the right to say that kind of stuff would be illegal. That would be totally up to the states. Things like abortion and gun laws and... I don't know, vaccines and just all the different political debates that are going on right now. Um, As a side note, that'll probably be our next episode. We'll be on a lot of this stuff. But the whole point originally was that the government didn't have any right to butt in on these things. And now it's expected that the government regulates all this stuff. And now it's a surprise. And some people say the states have no right to deny what the federal government says. So it's really weird. It's all been flipped over on its head, and this is what we're left with now. So there are a few takeaways. Let's go over those takeaways before we wrap up. Number one would be that there were two groups of founding fathers. We had basically the libertarians and the statists. So you had the federalists, obviously, were the statists. They believed in having a larger, more controlling national federal state that ruled over the entire nation and they wanted an entire nation. You had the libertarians that more wanted independence and sovereignty, that they were fine with something like the Articles of Confederation. Um, A confederacy was not a big deal to them where every state was sovereign, but they had some agreements and they worked together. That was fine by them, but that's what they wanted. That's a more libertarian idea. They did have many things in common, though. They weren't on totally opposite sides of the spectrum. So they both did worry about a few things. They worried about too much federal power. So even the Federalists believed that the federal government should stay in check. There's a reason why we have what we're taught of as the checks and balance system. There's a reason for that. There's a reason of having multiple branches of government and everybody keeping each other in check, and the states keep all those branches in check, and There's a reason why it's set up this way, to limit power. And even the Federalists believed that the government would not be able to overstep their bounds further than what was explicitly written in the Constitution. Now, that's not the way it played out. And both parties were right to worry about this issue. Both parties were also worried about mob rule. So the idea of a complete democracy was not what they intended. They did not believe that that was a very good idea. You shouldn't let the common people all just mass together and whoever can manipulate the crowd the best and get more than half of them to decide something, that's what gets forced upon the whole rest of the country. That was what they feared in a way, and that's why there was only one group of people that were elected democratically Some were elected by state governments, some were appointed by the government in office, 
and other people were, you even had like the electoral college where it's not even like a direct vote from a citizen to an elected official. So they basically broke that down where you would not have basically a mob rule or majority rules mentality because they didn't want that. They were worried about that. However, that's what a lot of people are screaming for today. So very different views, again, between today and what was the original ideal for America. They wanted a representative government, and they wanted freedom from the mother country. So they wanted out from under this oppressive, overarching ruler that basically had full control and had all these powers and could do whatever they wanted. They wanted out from under that. And they wanted a representative government where you did have locals that were elected and that they could represent the people. And they were representations of what the people desired. So the people weren't directly voting on every elected official. They weren't directly voting on every issue. But at least they were represented for all the things that went on in government. And that's what both parties wanted. Both parties wanted freedom of worship for all Christian denominations. Many also believed that there should be freedom for all religions, period. There were even a few atheists at this time, although atheism was kind of at its infancy around this time period. Most people still had a religion of some kind. But they did believe in freedom of religion to an extent. So, There were agreements among the two crowds, among the Federalists and the Anti-Federalists, is what they became to be called. So basically the Statists and the Libertarians, they did agree on some stuff. However, I hope you see the point that the true American ideal is very different, even on both sides, on the Federalist side, the Statist side, and the Libertarian side, the Anti-Federalists. The ideals that both of these sides had, even though they were very different from each other, are much more alike to each other than either one compared to what we have today. Big difference. So it's very interesting when you hear people talk about patriotism and, well, our founding fathers and talk about, you know, this is real America and, you know, I... I fully support the federal government and the military and all this stuff. And, you know, they really get behind it. They're very patriotic, but I don't think they really understand what it really means to be patriotic to the original ideas for the Constitution, for the Declaration of Independence, for the people and the founding fathers that were behind all these ideologies. People nowadays, it seems like they don't, really get it. They don't really know. And it's probably a lack of education. Not that they're stupid. It's just that they have not learned these things. And there's probably a reason for that. We'll get to that in one of our education episodes. But the Thomas Jefferson quote that I started this episode off with to begin with, that's what he was saying, is that this would happen. And this was a fear of his, that people would not be well-informed, would not be well-educated. But what he said is that you should not have a violent revolt. That's not what's necessary. What you need to do is educate the people. That's what's most important. And so that's what we try to do here. Everyone should be educated. I'm educating myself on a daily basis. Hopefully you are doing the same on a regular basis. And that's the point of this podcast is to educate people on all these areas. That is the way to have a better society. 
I agree with Thomas Jefferson in that area. So let's end this episode with two more quotes. We'll start off with John Adams. He said, There is nothing which I dread so much as a division of the Republic into two great parties, each arranged under its leader and concerting measures in opposition to each other. This, in my humble apprehension, is to be dreaded as the greatest political evil under our Constitution. The next quote is Abraham Lincoln. So, although he did have some interesting views that most of us would definitely not agree with, he did have some good points, and he had plenty of things that were good that he believed and that he said. One of the things he said was, We the people are the rightful masters of both Congress and the courts not to overthrow the Constitution, but to overthrow the men who pervert the Constitution. So you kind of get the point between John Adams and Abraham Lincoln that what we have now is definitely not what they thought we should have, and probably things should be done about that. But that's way beyond us here today. So let's wrap up. Please look at the show notes for all of our links for the website, the Patreon page if you want to support there. It'd be great if you could rate and review the podcast so we can get more exposure. We have the Twitter account at FoundationsPC. That's a really good one. It's a fun one. Lots of memes and fun things and quotes and stuff, mainly against the governmental view and actions. So that's about it. I'll wrap up there. Thank you very much for listening. If you come back next time, which hopefully you will, we should be talking about divisive politics. We're getting into our next episode on government, and we're going to be talking about kind of the current state of government. So we've gone over the history. We've gone over what's brought us to where we are today and how these systems came to be. And now what we're going to talk about for the next few episodes is what is the effect of this? What is the result of this history of these systems and the way they have been set up and the intentions behind them? What happens to society under these conditions? Well, lots of things happen and most of them have not been good. So we're going to talk about the first aspect and that would be that of divisive politics and how this debate, this national debate occurs among individuals and in the political realm. And talk about things like abortion and vaccination and gun laws and all that fun stuff that people get really worked up about. We're going to touch on all those and uh, how that works, and that should be interesting. So if you're interested, come back next time. Thank you very much for listening. I hope you have a wonderful day, night, evening, afternoon, whatever time it is that you listen to this. I'm out. Peace. Thank you for listening. Goodbye.